Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And as you can tell on the screen before you, we are once again diving back into the world of Epic versus everyone and their Fortnite disputes against Google and Apple. They actually wound up having a filing filed in the Google case, which we might cover later, but it basically says that Google doesn't want to be combined with Apple because they have different business models. Now, if you aren't familiar with these cases, I highly recommend our now 14 or 15 video strong playlist. We won't go over all of the background details here, but suffice it to say, Epic tried to add direct payment to their Fortnite product. They got kicked off the Apple and Google stores and then filed a federal antitrust lawsuit against those companies, which had, as a result of that lawsuit, a temporary restraining order partially accepted and partially denied at the end of August. And now we see the next step in the process with Epic filing their pre preliminary motion for a preliminary injunction that will be heard by the court on September 28th at the end of this month. There are a lot of arguments in here that reflect what they said in their request for a temporary restraining order and their supplemental documents in respect of that request. But they also start to make what, in my opinion, are stronger arguments that are more detailed and focused at the actual legal precedent and legal matters before the court in this particular case. Now understand, when we do these videos, I know I've said this a lot in the past, so I apologize for anyone that has heard this before already and already taken it into account. I'm not the judge. I'm a lawyer, as you can see from the documents that are being presented by very highly paid law firms on both sides of Epic and Apple, reasonable minds can construct reasonable arguments for why a specific case should be brought, why it should be denied, why a preliminary injunction should ensue, and all of these various things. I, in my seat here at Hogue Law, believe that Epic has a relatively weak case, and we'll talk about why that is as we go through their request for preliminary injunction here, but it's not an impossible case, and I think they make some pretty good claims here that Apple is going to have to counter when they make their response to this motion. And because of that, I want to talk about them with you because it's going to change the landscape of how this is all going to look on September 28th or if it gets delayed whenever this hearing winds up happening. Now, to start out with, we note what Epic is going to be asking for here because it's a lot. They ask for four categories of things. First, they ask that the court restrain Apple from removing, delisting, refusing to list, or otherwise making unavailable app Fortnite, or any other app on Epic Teams ID 84 account. That is basically their game development team that ends in the number 84 with respect to the Apple Partnership Program. They want to have the court mandate that Apple not remove or otherwise harm the video game team's account, including any update of such an app, Fortnite, from the App Store on the basis that Fortnite offers in-app payment processing through means other than Apple's in-app purchase or on any pretextual basis, which is a lot of legal words. But basically it means that Fortnite version that Epic added that allowed you to pay Epic directly and to forego going through the Apple in-app purchase system at all. Apple doesn't get its 30%. Epic gets 100% of the dollars that it collects from you. They want the court to mandate that Apple have that up on its store, that Fortnite version. They also want to restrain Apple from taking any adverse action against Epic including but not limited to restricting, suspending, or terminating any other Apple developer program account 
on the basis of all of this happening with Fortnite, which is mostly what the court agreed to do with respect to the temporary restraining order, as we talked about in those videos. This is primarily designed to help Epic avoid impacts to its Unreal Engine and development teams that have different team numbers under the Apple Publisher program. They want the court to restrain Apple from removing, disabling, or modifying Fortnite. They want to prevent Apple from doing anything on its end to change how Fortnite operates, such as cutting off the direct payment option, even though it might otherwise show in the code. And then number four, actually the biggest one since, temp since Apple took this step in between the temporary restraining order and now, they want to require Apple to restore the Team ID 84 account in their developer program. This motion should be made, according to Epic, on the grounds that Epic is likely to succeed on the merits of the claims that Apple's conduct violates the Sherman Act, that it is an antitrust violation, that absent a preliminary injunction, Epic will suffer irreparable harm, that the balance of the harms, what we've previously seen described as the balance of equities, tips sharply in Epic's favor, and the public interest supports an injunction. Now, that's a laundry list of requests, the biggest one of which is, as we've discussed in this space, the fact that Epic wants a government body, the court, to mandate that Apple allow on its service a product in Fortnite as modified that violates directly its terms of service, its developer guidelines, the entirety of its publisher kind of concept. And Epic's claim here is basically that the entirety of that concept is illegal, that it's a violation of antitrust laws in the United States, that it is an illegal restraint of trade, that is an exercise of monopoly power held by Apple in its own iOS distribution market and the iOS in-app purchase market, and that because it is illegal, because it's a restraint, because we're going to win this case, the court should essentially do this all early because it will be very difficult to repair the damage done to Epic if, at the end of the day, Epic wins in a couple of years, you will have wished that you have filed for this preliminary injunction, in essence. Now, as we've talked about in the past, Epic has used a lot of rhetoric in what it says here. And one of the things I would like to point out in this preliminary statement as part of this motion is how much Epic has pared back that kind of incendiary rhetoric, that this looks a lot more to me like a fairly traditional legal document. We can see it in the very first paragraph where they say, Apple is a monopolist. It controls all app distribution on iOS. It controls all in-app payment processing for digital content on iOS. It unlawfully maintains these two monopolies by explicitly prohibiting any competitive entry in either market. It is highly likely to lose this case. That's a great opening set of sentences. Whether or not you agree with it, it clearly and definitively establishes what Epic is trying to prove. Compare that to what they went out with in their original claim here. In 1984, the fledgling Apple computer company released the Macintosh, etc. Fast forward to 2020 and Apple has become what it once railed against. The behemoth seeking to control markets, block competition, and stifle innovation. This is not unseen in complaints like this, but it was one of the things that jumped out at me when Epic originally filed it. It has all of this kind of breathless political rhetoric that was designed really to be captured by certainly folks like virtual legality, but also journalists operating in this space and otherwise. Now that we are starting to get down to brass tacks, you start to see the lawyers kind of take control of the messaging even a little bit more than they were already doing. And as a lawyer myself, I tend to like that more. This is more direct. If you were to look at the number of pages in this statement, it's actually in the 30s instead of in the 60s. You skip all of the rest of that kind of color and you get right down to what they want to talk about. 
They describe Apple's retaliation about cutting off potentially Unreal Engine, cutting off Fortnite. And they say this was a clear warning to any other developer that would dare challenge Apple's monopolies. Follow our rules or we will cut you off from a billion iOS consumers. Challenge us and we will destroy your business. Now, again, take with a grain of salt all of these comments because this is epic assuming that they are in the right, which is absolutely what they should do in a claim like this. But keep in the back of your mind, as we used to say in law school, you always want to keep in the back of your mind the opposite end of this argument, right? If Epic isn't, or if Apple isn't in violation of antitrust, if the court ultimately were to find that this contract arrangement with IAP and everything else is just fine, none of these sentences make sense, right? When you look at their claims, Apple is allowed, if their contract is legal, to say, hey, if you breach our contract, we're allowed to cut you off. You, Epic, don't have a right to access our contractual relationships. We have a right to defend what we want to put forth in the relationships that we enter into. And so all of this, all of these arguments, all of this language is premised on the fact that Epic is going to win its case. And that's very, very important because one of the things that the judge has already said in respect of the temporary restraining order is that she is not quite sure that Epic is likely to win this case. And so at the current posture of the court, that becomes the critical kind of question. And a lot of what we will see Epic complain about, a lot of what we will see Epic explain here is premised on the fact that they have a slam dunk great case and that the court is going to agree with that. And if they do, then the preliminary injunction should ensue. The court should not allow Apple to enforce these restrictions. The authorities from the earliest time to the present unanimously hold that no court will lend its assistance in any way towards carrying out the terms of an illegal contract. In such cases, the aid of the court is denied, not for the benefit of the non-complying party, but because public policy demands that it should be denied. Unclean hands has not been recognized as a defense to an antitrust action for many years, this principle has been applied in analogous preliminary injunction context. This is them trying to set up that as a counter to Apple's argument, which if you remember, was that, hey, Epic did this to itself. Epic created this situation. Epic created everything that is happening right now. And because it has those quote unquote unclean hands, what we've got here, court, is a case where Epic could fix this instantly. Epic chooses not to do so, and you should not give a temporary restraining order or now a preliminary injunction because Epic could fix this and calling something that Epic could fix irreparable harm isn't fair. Epic skips to the final equation here and brings up a lot of precedent that says courts are against illegal contracts, that throughout time, Courts have voided contracts for public policy, and because there is a public interest in voiding co certain contracts as being illegal, then court, you should issue this preliminary injunction. But it assumes its premise, right? And, and we said that before. Epic is assuming that they have a winning case here. If they don't, or if the court doubts that they do, these arguments don't make any sense because you're already bringing up things that were finally decided. Now, they have some better arguments in this document, which we will get to in a second. Epic is ideally situated to challenge Apple's restrictions. Epic is a would-be direct competitor of Apple in the relevant markets ready to offer competitive app distribution and competitive payment processing on iOS. Understand what they're saying there. Apple claims complete dominion over the iOS and how it operates. We have said in the past in this series that we think that that's in general the way that this has worked in the industries of technology. Certainly in the courts haven't really looked at 
challenging that in any reasonable respect. And this might be one of the first instances where they do that here in the United States. But Epic wants to be able to get access to the iOS, not to sideload, and that's important as well, and to get direct access and to offer its own app store and its own payment processing that will, in fact, cut off Apple's business model for how they currently operate the iOS system. Now they tell the court, hey, that's because their business model is illegal. Maybe you agree with them. Maybe you don't. Please leave comments in the description, as I know you will, to how you feel about the various merits of these claims in the case overall. But if Apple is otherwise legal in what they are doing, then this claim, like the rest, don't make a lot of sense. To enable Epic to carry out this challenge without suffering irreparable harm from Apple's retaliation in the interim, Epic respectfully requests that the court grant its motion for preliminary injunction to stop Apple from retaliating further and to undo Apple's retaliation to date. Epic's biggest problem here is that they could turn off this Fortnite button in a second, hash out exactly what's going on in this lawsuit, and then get to the end of the day and then figure out who has damages to whom. That's going to ultimately, in my opinion, be the losing position for Epic, but they make some good arguments here. First, they say they're likely to succeed on the merits. Now, the important part to remember here is that the court isn't so sure, right? In this temporary restraining order, they say based on a review of the current limited record before the court, the court cannot conclude that Epic has met the high burden of demonstrating a likelihood of success in the merits, especially in the antitrust context. Now, there are some weasel words. There are some ability for Epic to fight about this, right? Based on a review of the current limited record before the court, absolutely court, let's clear up that record for you. And so one of the things you see them do in this motion is they put together a 60 page document from an expert that they have found that says that the iOS market is a monopoly and the app distribution market uh, along with the in-app purchase market are monopolies that are aftermarkets tied to that initial monopoly that Apple is doing all these bad things and says, hey, court, look at this expert saying these things. And this is how you get into a battle of the experts and Apple will have their own experts and that's all well and good. And as you can see, the life of a federal judge isn't an easy one because you've got a lot of highly paid, well-trained, very smart intellectual lawyers fighting about these very tiny details. But ultimately, at the temporary restraining order level, the court said, I'm not so sure. And I'm not so sure that what Epic has put forward here actually defeats that particular concept. If it doesn't, that's going to be a problem for issuing a preliminary injunction, especially one that Epic did create the situation surrounding. Using the power of Apple's monopoly, it has designed a set of restrictions through which it acquired and maintains monopolies in two downstream markets where competition can and should thrive, app distribution and in-app payment processing. Now, there's a couple of things there, just in terms of the overall theory of the case that Epic brings up, that Apple has already countered in their response to the temporary restraining order request, but that are very important. One, Epic has to claim that there are two markets, that in-app distribution, in-app payment processing is different from app distribution on the iOS. Apple has said they're the same. Apple has said, hey, look, we treat this iOS as holistic. We've got all of these kind of different widgets and levers and things in the operating system itself. But when we talk about payment processing, when we talk about how you get in-app purchases done, those are all one and the same to the transactional approach to the iOS in general. So Epic has to establish that there are two markets because their primary monopolistic power argument is that the in-app purchase model is illegally tied to the app distribution model. And they also have to show, as you can see here from the use of the word downstream, that those two markets are separate from the iOS and separate from iPhone and iPad sales overall, all of which Apple is going to fight against. But if Epic could show 
that these are effectively aftermarkets that weren't really thought about and reflected upon by purchasers at the phone level. And they are two separate markets that Apple undoubtedly has monopoly power in. There's no question there. As we talked about in our very first video, Apple has a monopoly in iOS access. It has a monopoly in iOS app distribution. It has a monopoly in in in-app payment processing. What is the question is whether those are relevant markets and whether those are relevant markets is going to decide this case because if they're not, then Apple doesn't have any powers that are untowards outside of the overall competition at the phone level, which it's not winning. I think we'll see here in this document, it's got 40% of revenues at the phone level, something along those lines. And so Epic has to show these things and they might. I am not the judge here. Reasonable minds can differ as we say in this space, but it's certainly not a fait accompli. And if it's not a fait accompli, then the court is going to be very reluctant to issue preliminary injunctions when the case is up for grabs. That's what this case is designed to adjudicate. So we don't make early decisions based on limited information. Likewise, in the in-app payment processing market, but for Apple's restrictions, iOS app developers offering in-app purchases of digital content could choose which processor to use, just as they do when their apps sell physical goods to iOS users. Now, this is a pretty strong argument from them. Instead, Apple absolutely prohibits any competition in either market, leaving Apple free to impose distribution and processing terms unchecked by competitive forces. To be clear, Epic does not seek to force Apple to provide distribution and processing services for free, nor does Epic seek to enjoy Apple's services without paying for them. What Epic wants is the freedom not to use Apple's App Store or IAP, and instead to use and offer competing services. Now, That's Epic's claim. That's all well and good. They want to say, hey, Judge, you've talked about free. You've talked about Epic not giving away its products for free. We don't think that Apple should have to give its products away for free. In respect of that, the temporary restraining order actually says Epic Games moves this court to allow it to access Apple's platform for free while it makes money on each purchase made on the same platform. While the court anticipates experts will opine that the 30% take is anti-competitive, the court doubts that any expert would suggest a 0% alternative, not even Epic Games, gives away its products for free. Understand that the court is framing this question as Epic's access to the iOS directly. Right now, you can jailbreak your phone. You can put Epic stuff on a jailbroken phone, no problem. On Android, you can sideload those things. Epic has a problem with those techniques because it doesn't find them easy enough for their people to use in-app purchases, right? We will see in this very claim, we saw it in their prior claims, that Epic is concerned that if you have any friction at all to spending money on V-Bucks, that you probably won't spend that money on the V-Bucks, which in my opinion, is its own kind of concession to the business model that Epic is undertaking, and maybe a lot of other free-to-play game makers are undertaking on this basis. But be that as it may, Epic says sideloading isn't good enough, jailbroken phones aren't good enough, we do want access to the Apple platform. And so the judge here is saying, well, that access is worth something. Apple is a brand. Apple is marketing its phones. It is bringing in that billion customers and you want access to that market that Apple created for free. I'm not so sure about that. From my seat here at Hoag Law, I am tending to agree with that overall concept that Epic getting access to the iOS on any kind of officially supported basis, just appearing on the iOS in general is valuable. And Apple is entitled as the makers of this brand, as establishing this market to some compensation for making that all happen. Is 30% right? Hey, I think 30% is too high. It doesn't mean I think that they're monopolists. I think that that's a price that I think is just flat out out too high. But 
does Apple have the right to control access to its iOS is really where this all comes down. Second, without injunctive relief, Apple's actions will cause irreparable harm to Epic, as well as harm to countless third parties and the public interest. In this case, these two factors of the preliminary injunction standard are closely related. Epic was willing to stand up to Apple because it was the right thing to do, and because Epic believed it was better positioned than many other companies to weather the storm. In fact, granting the injunction would promote the public policies favoring competitive markets and disfavoring enforcement of anti-competitive contract terms. Again, assumes its premise. But if Epic is right, they're right here. The problem is, is that the legal system and the machinery within it takes time. And we don't know whether Apple's contract is a Sherman Act antitrust violative one right now. And we can't know that until discovery and depositions and the actual court hearing takes place. So what we are left with is should the court act now in advance of all of that process? And I think that's going to be a problem. But as we will see, Epic makes the good claim that Apple is treating in-app purchases differently, makes a number of good claims that strengthen Epic's overall argument to potentially winning an antitrust case. But I just don't think it gets across the line to what amounts to, hey, we are very likely to win this thing, judge. And we're in a gray area where Epic has a chance of winning it, but they're not on the very likely side of the spectrum. And so the court should be reluctant to force Apple to allow breaches of its contract. Again, just my opinion, but it is, in fact, an opinion worth having. Fortnite is more than just a game. Epic has built a community that people rely on. The continued loss of Fortnite as a gathering place for users on all platforms will lead Epic's customers to defect which Apple's counter response to this is a pretty easy one. That's fine. Then stop breaching your agreement. Have this lawsuit with us and we will proceed apace. Epic then continues with what I really like here is they bring in some technological stuff, which we have talked about in this very series. The removal of Fortnite from iOS also substantially impedes a major Epic initiative, evolving Fortnite into a full-fledged metaverse, a multi-purpose, persistent, interactive virtual space. If Apple can cut off Epic's ability to continue updating Unreal Engine for iOS and Mac OS, both Epic and the millions of developers using Unreal Engine would be harmed. So we've got a couple of competing uh, arguments here, but the first I wanted to mention is this metaverse, right? We've talked about this in this space. Epic clearly has designs to make Fortnite into this all-seeing oasis-like landscape in which you can watch movies, you can get documentary footage put up, you can attend virtual concerts, and all the while, hopefully, from Epic's standpoint, collecting B-Buck dollars, right? And we talked about that in this video, the future is Fortnite, but overall, Epic says, hey, we want to do this thing, and Apple not allowing us on their system prevents us from doing that. Epic still has the fundamental issue of they breached the contract. So they have to go all the way to the top level and say this whole court's out of order. The entire contract needs to be thrown out, at least on this basis. Going forward, developers of the Unreal Engine are questioning whether Unreal Engine would remain a viable platform on which to build their applications. Only a preliminary injunction can bring the level of certainty that developers need and that Epic therefore needs to protect its business. Now, the interesting thing about that particular argument is that Epic did create this situation, regardless of whether you think they are in the right to do so. And Unreal developers are rightly looking at it and saying, Epic, well, you didn't have to create it in this way. So we have concerns about entering into contracts with you just to basis on how you behave. And then saying only a preliminary injunction can bring a level of certainty doesn't actually solve the fundamental issue. If I'm a developer and I'm working in Unreal Engine or I'm thinking about working on Unreal Engine, I now know that Epic is at bare minimum a wild card type licensor. 
And so I need to think about that regardless of what one judge somewhere else decides in respect of a preliminary injunction, because Epic might win this preliminary injunction, never say never, but they might lose the next one. And if they do, then you as a developer have to think about, hey, Epic is willing to have us as hostages, is willing to throw these relationships under the bus to try to make in-app purchase money on the iOS and on the Android ecosystem and to build their metaverse, they are willing to toss our development relationships away. And you might not think that is fair, but if you are a business owner and you are a small-time app developer of any kind, you have to think about these issues. That damage is done. That cat is out of the bag. That bell cannot be unrung. And so I don't think that the preliminary injunction argument here is particularly strong because hey, one judge saying one thing in this particular case isn't going to solve for the uncertainty that you have created for your own developers, Epic. Third, the balance of harms tips strongly in Epic's favor. If the injunction is denied and Epic ultimately prevails, Epic will suffer the irreparable harm described above. If the injunction is granted and Epic ultimately loses, Apple would at most lose some commissions from Epic, which could easily be compensated in damages. Apple's purported concern that every developer would follow Epic's lead if Fortnite returned to iOS with Epic Direct Pay is speculative and implausible. Few developers can risk the wrath of Apple, and developers would have little incentive to take the risk and bear the expense of doing so while this action is pending. Now, Epic makes the claim here that says, effectively what Apple did in reverse. It says, look, you should issue this preliminary injunction as effectively a, a safety measure, right? It's a lot easier to fix this if you got this wrong right now by allowing us to have Fortnite on the store for however many years this takes place, then it would be to fix it later because Epic is having all this psychological damage done to its goodwill and to its branding and to its potential Unreal Engine developer partners, et cetera, et cetera. The problem with this argument, which I think is a compelling, at least kind of framing of the case, is that you still come back to the earliest question, which is, did Epic do this to themselves? Could Epic fix this? And I do think the court is going to continue to have a problem with it right? The court said in their temporary restraining order denial on this question, the current predicament appears of its own making. Epic Games remains free to maintain its agreements with Apple in breach status as this litigation continues, but as the Seventh Circuit recognized, the sensible way to proceed is for Epic to comply with the agreements and continue to operate while it builds a record. Epic Games admits that the technology exists to fix the problem easily by, de by deactivating the hotfix. That Epic Games would prefer not to litigate in that context does not mean that irreparable harm exists. Now, that's the court's holding at the temporary restraining order level. That's August. In September, could the court change its mind? Could the court be convinced by some of the expert appeals that Epic puts forth? We don't know what Apple is going to say yet, and so Apple will have its own claims. But yeah, absolutely, the court could change its mind. But overall, this is a very kind of broad set of statements, and the underlying facts of this case didn't change. Epic is trying to establish effectively that it has a high chance of winning. But the irreparable harm question hasn't changed. Epic created the situation, and I don't think that's going to be convincing to the court just with what Epic is saying today. Moreover, Apple does not assert that the agreements governing the tools used to sustain Unreal Engine and many other Epic businesses were breached, and the apps for Unreal Engine and the other businesses are registered under different Apple developer program accounts than the account that registers Fortnite for distribution on iOS. This is about Unreal Engine. This is the second part of that temporary restraining order. This is actually the part that they won in which the court prohibited Apple from taking actions against the other development partners. Now, 
they are going to have a continued issue. Apple is very likely to have a fulsome motion as part of these September documents that says effectively, hey, look, we don't have to work with anybody we don't want to work with for any reason or no reason. And so we can terminate the rest of this stuff because we are under no obligation to support tool sets or to interact with companies that federally sue us for contracts that they have been entered into now for a decade. And so Apple is going to bring that claim, and that might be a winner, and that might be a loser. I tend to like that claim that we shouldn't be in the business as a court of law or as a government in general of forcing people to interact with each other. And the contract has always said that it doesn't matter if there's a breach, we can always terminate. But the court might step in and Apple might not have a claim there. Epic's Unreal Engine argument is by far the strongest because Unreal Engine didn't do anything. The Epic Enterprise concept outside of their game development hasn't done anything. And so Epic wants to effectively bifurcate those two roles. And and I think that's the strongest element. It'll be very interesting to see what Apple puts in response to those claims and in response to the fact that they lost that part of the temporary restraining order in the first instance. Then we get a lot of background I know we've already talked for almost a half hour here, so we're going to skip most of that background, but we are going to update you as to what has happened since, as Epic describes it as follows. On August 28th, 2020, Apple terminated Epic's developer program account, Team ID 84, that's their games development, stating that Apple is exercising its right in Apple's sole discretion to terminate your status as a registered Apple developer pursuant to the Apple developer agreement and is terminating the developer agreement and the PLA pursuant to their terms. We will deny your reapplication to the Apple developer program for at least a year. As a result, Fortnite and other apps associated with the Team ID 84 account, Battle Breakers, Spy Jinx, and Infinity Blade stickers have been removed from the App Store and Shadow Complex Remastered has been removed from the Mac App Store. These apps can no longer be updated and will soon become obsolete. With respect to things like Shadow Complex, I'm not sure exactly how a single-player game becomes obsolete, uh, but Epic is just making the overall court case here that they can't update these things, and so what the purchasers of these products, or maybe even the in-app purchases related to these products, they're no longer going to be able to get what they paid for, and Epic has been inundated with customer complaints expressing frustration and confusion at not being able to download the latest version of Epic's apps from the App Store, as well as disappointment and anger at Epic. Epic wants to frame this as something that Epic doesn't deserve because Epic is fighting a righteous fight against anti-competitive restraints of trade. And depending on where you wind up on that argument, maybe you are amenable to that specific position. Overall, though, the court has suggested that because Epic breached it and they didn't have to breach it as part of this conversation, that a lot of this is color Epic feels bad about. Epic doesn't want to get all these customer complaints, but Epic could fix it in two seconds. And the court is generally reluctant to use the power and force of government to fix something that one or the other of the parties could fix on their own recognizance. Now let's talk about the actual legal substance here. Epic's strongest case as of yet, has been presented with respect to their likelihood to succeed on the merits of their overall claim. And remember, if you haven't watched the previous videos in this series, this preliminary injunction is essentially trying to get an early ruling before the court goes through any of this stuff. So one of the things that they have to show is, court, we're going to win this case, so you don't have to feel bad about giving us certain of the powers and rights that we want to ask for right now, because ultimately, at the end of the day, we are going to win. So they say Apple's anti-competitive conduct begins with preventing all competitive alternatives to its app store, leading to its complete monopolization of the iOS app distribution market. As we've talked about in this video and in this series, that is undoubtedly a correct statement that Apple has a monopoly in the iOS app distribution market. The problem that Epic has is that every provider of a specific 
product or service has a monopoly on the terms under which that product or service is sold, right? As we've talked about, Hoaglaw has a monopoly on the creation of virtual legality videos. Chris Pratt has a monopoly on Chris Pratt performances. And to be a little bit more specific on these kinds of questions, McDonald's or any other franchisor that you can think of has a monopoly on the access and availability to getting into that franchise relationship. That you go and you get a franchise agreement with one of these big brands, it's going to have 75 pages of terms about how you're going to treat the brand, what kind of cut they're going to get, what kind of services you're going to provide, how you're going to operate your business, all in order to get access to the brand, the intellectual property, the value that a company like McDonald's or Dunkin' Donuts is putting out there with national advertisements, with getting people excited about access to that product that you are going to benefit from. And so McDonald's, absolutely a monopoly provider of McDonald's brand access. And I would argue that that's the closest analogy to what we're talking about here from a corporate contract standpoint, which is that Apple is saying that they have created this circus tent, to go back to a prior video in this series, and you are welcome to sell your popcorn at this circus tent, but you have to abide by the rules of the circus tent that we have built and that we have provided. We are undoubtedly a monopoly provider of access to the circus tent. Apple wouldn't even fight that. The question is whether it is a violative market, whether or not the antitrust laws even wind up caring about a single brand market that was created, that didn't exist before Apple did anything to create it. As Epic then goes on and explains, Apple exacerbates the harm, the monopoly over app distribution, by extending that monopoly through a naked tie, a tying of two products, into a monopoly in the downstream iOS in-app payment processing market. Because Apple's monopoly power in the iOS app distribution market is the foundation of its misconduct in both markets, Epic begins there. It will explain how Apple unlawfully maintains its monopoly in that market and then focuses on the illegality of the restriction that Epic defied. Apple's tying of in-app payment processing to its distribution monopoly. Note one of the things that happens in this document is that Epic basically kicks the entire description of 30%, right? So many pages, so much language was devoted in the initial complaint to how problematic 30% was, how high the monopoly power, all these bad things. They have now focused like a laser beam on where they, I think they will wind up, which is this notion that the distribution and in-app payment processing are distinct and that you shouldn't be allowed to tie them together. Because if Epic can break that, the 30% and everything else falls away because Epic can then do its own payment processing and potentially do its own app distribution. But payment processing is priority number one because understand Epic made whatever it made, $700 million in the first two years of availability of Fortnite on the iOS, according to some sources. And that would mean that Epic could go and claim some portion, some massive portion of the $300 million that it paid to Apple. Once you think about it like that, you understand what's at stake here and why Epic would bring a claim. Because if they can get a certain portion of that $300 million, that pays for a lot of lawyer hours. That pays for a lot of legal billing. Because you can pay lawyers and law firms $2 million, but if you made $250 million, well, that's a lawsuit that you bring. Now, they also say to grant a preliminary injunction, the court does not need to find a likelihood of success on Epic's claims in both markets. That's in-app payment processing and app distribution. A likelihood of success on Epic's tying claim alone would be sufficient to support the relief Epic seeks. Now, that's actually kind of a false 
positive right there, right? Because Apple is a monopoly provider of iOS app distribution. It's undoubtedly a monopoly provider of iOS in-app payment processing. You don't actually need to distinguish those two for this. They're just trying to add sentences to make a court feel better about potentially issuing a preliminary injunction. But at no point will Apple only be a monopoly provider of one or the other of those. Their bigger issue is the following. If Apple were correct that app distribution and in-app payment processing are a single product, then a likelihood of success on Epic's broader monopoly maintenance claim in the iOS app distribution market would support its requested relief as one important step in addressing Apple's overarching misconduct. Now, that's an important point. They put all of this effort into establishing that there is this tying and they want this tying to be severed. But they have to argue in the alternative, as we might otherwise describe it. Hey, let's say, court, that you grant that Apple only has one market here, and it's only app distribution or iOS access or whatever you want to frame it as judge. We are still going to argue that through their technology and through their contracts, they are illegally maintaining their monopoly position in those two things when they shouldn't be allowed to do so. But understand, as you're watching this episode, that is an inherently weaker case. That if they can win on tying, if these are distinct products, that almost solves itself versus actually having to establish that it should be illegal for Apple to have a monopoly over access to its own operating system is much, much more a bridge to clear for Epic in this, and it will be much, much more difficult for them to get to. So they're arguing in the alternative, but it's not really the case they want to bring. First, they say Apple has a monopoly in the iOS app distribution market. They use a bunch of quotes from their expert. I think that Apple will concede this. Apple absolutely has a monopoly in the iOS distribution market. Their bigger case and their more important case here is as follows. Contrary to Apple's position in their opposition to our temporary restraining order request, the iOS app distribution market is a proper single brand market. So understand what Sony said. Sony said what I've said in this series. A manufacturer's own products do not themselves comprise a relevant product market, and a company does not violate the Sherman Act by virtue of the natural monopoly it holds over its own product. Courts routinely reject the argument that single branded product constitutes a relevant market, and the only authority Epic offers in support of their claim is somebody that is in Europe interpreting European competition law. So Epic comes back and says, no, no, this is a relevant market. And what they use is a fairly contentious case from an economist's perspective. And again, if you haven't been here a lot or you don't know me that well, I have an economics background. I got my bachelor's in economics before going on to do law and, of course, business and transactions in the law. And they say the law permits an antitrust claimant to restrict the relevant market to a single brand of the product at issue in a case called Eastman Kodak. If we go and we look at Eastman Kodak, this is one of those that a number of people have brought up to me in my comments, kind of obliquely, not necessarily referencing the case, but we've got up the Wikipedia summary here. This is a case that you will go over in antitrust if you are ever in law school and you're in an antitrust case. Eastman Kodak versus Image Technical Services, Inc., in which the court held that even though an equipment manufacturer lacked significant market power in the primary market for its equipment, and again, Epic can't really make the case that Apple has some kind of monopoly over smartphone access, it could have sufficient market power in the secondary aftermarket for repair parts to be liable under the antitrust laws for its exclusionary conduct in the aftermarket. So this is another kind of case where a number of you have brought up kind of right to repair questions, Apple trying to defeat laws around right to repair in various locations. This directly kind of comments on that. Understand the situation in this case, though, because this is somebody sells you a copier 
They don't have a monopoly on copier sales. And then they say, okay, if you want to repair that copier, we're going to have a monopoly effectively on your access to repair goods. What the court calls here a secondary aftermarket for repair parts. And the court said, hey, you can be a monopolist in that very specific market. And again, as we talked about at the very start of this series, all of these questions relate to exactly where you put the magnifying glass, where you establish that market, because you can find a monopoly in any market you want if you take that and you make it narrow enough. And in this case, Eastman Kodak wants to say, no, 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 it's the copier market. We clearly don't have a monopoly. And their opposition here says, no, no, it's the aftermarket. And the court ultimately sided with them in a fairly contentious decision that wound up making economics waves for decades to follow and which really hasn't been followed up on in the technology space, in the digital space. As you can see, this case is from 1992. And that's a 1992 case that Epic winds up citing here. But let's take a look at the aspects of this particular instance. First, app distribution on iOS is an aftermarket that is wholly derivative from and dependent on the primary market, which is smartphone or tablet OSs. Without the OS, there would be no market for app distribution on the iOS. Now, they also add that this is why the Psystar Corp precedent that Apple cites is off point. There, they say, the alleged market at issue was the primary market for Mac OS, not a derivative aftermarket. But understand, this is changing the magnifying glass even as you watch, right? So that particular case was about Mac OS and competitors to Mac OS and running Mac OS on their platforms uh, specifically, which is an aftermarket to the hardware sales. And then here we have a question of whether or not there's an aftermarket in the app sales underneath the iOS sales. So there might well be. You can look at this and you can agree or you can disagree with what Epic is saying here, but they are trying to establish that effectively, even though Apple says that their entire ecosystem is app dependent, right? That they are selling a phone, that people that buy it understand how it operates, understand that they're going to get apps on this, understand that Apple is going to control that flow. Epic says, no, it's not. People are just buying a phone. And then there is an aftermarket of app development, app distribution, and in-app payment which is essentially kind of a a waterfall where you've got that initial sale of the phone, then you've got the app distribution, and then you've got the in-app payment processing. And Epic wants to, at bare minimum, sever that bottom piece off, but they would also be perfectly happy to sever both of the top two pieces off and have their own app store. So they say it's an aftermarket, Judge. This is an aftermarket just like Eastman Kodak, where you have repair parts. They say the illegal restraints of trade and illegal monopolization relate only to the aftermarket, not to the initial market. Epic does not challenge Apple's practices on the sale of their smartphone or tablet OSs. The restraints at issue apply only to the aftermarket. Third, Apple does not achieve market power in the aftermarket through contractual provisions that it obtains in the initial market, but instead its market power flows from its relationship with its consumers. When purchasing iOS devices, consumers do not contractually agree to obtain apps only through the App Store. But Epic is, again, kind of sliding around on where the definitions live here, right? Because does not achieve market power in the aftermarket through contractual provisions that it obtains in the initial market is related to the developer's piece of that puzzle, right? Epic is trying to say that Apple has an aftermarket and app distribution. Then it ties it to the consumers not agreeing to contractually agree to obtain apps only through the App Store when, in fact, what Epic is fighting is the distribution contract that Apple has with them. Epic is Apple's consumer in a very real way there and probably doesn't have a distinct aftermarket because Epic isn't purchasing OSs, isn't purchasing iPhones for that particular purpose, which is all a long way of saying 
This is a pretty good argument to say that all of this is aftermarket, but it has its flaws that Apple will undoubtedly talk about. Epic says that, hey, you've got an aftermarket, you're an illegal monopoly, you're just like Eastman Kodak, and you should be prevented from doing all these things. Apple will respond and already has responded in part in their temporary restraining order opposition that says, no, no, the Apple phone, the iPhone is all this one thing. We sell a walled garden. People want to buy into that walled garden. That's how we got a billion customers to begin with. They want to have Apple have that control. They know what they are getting into when they buy it. And so when you talk about market power in that quote unquote monopolistic iOS access question, it is the power that is endemic. It is intrinsic to the product that we are selling to people. And yes, I sitting here at Hoag Law tend to agree with Apple's side of the argument. But I'm always happy to hear other comments and reasonable minds can differ on this. If you like this epic argument and you want to say this is actually, in fact, closer to Eastman Kodak because of this reason and this reason, Rick, I will happily entertain those things. I love to have those conversations in this space. Finally, they go to the last piece of the puzzle here and they say competition in the initial market does not necessarily suffice to discipline anti-competitive practices in the aftermarket. Now, this is important in and of itself, right? You've got this aftermarket. And Apple wants to say, hey, look, you are looking, you're taking that magnifying glass too small. You were looking at areas where, of course, we have a monopoly, but we don't have a monopoly on the sale of smartphones. And people are every day deciding on whether they want to pay for the Apple brand, whether they want to pay for the walled garden, whether they want to pay for our iPhones. We aren't winning that fight necessarily. We've got Androids everywhere. We've got other smartphone providers everywhere. And we have the competition about whether or not you want access to the App Store at that level. Because when you buy the smartphone, you know you're getting the app store. When you buy an Android, you know you can sideload things and you want to have a more open environment. And everybody that actually looks at this question knows it, Judge. So we have that competition at the higher level. So Epic has to establish that that doesn't suffice. So they say Apple enjoys significant market power in any appropriately defined antitrust market for smartphone OSs. Apple is at least a duopolist in such a market along with Google. Through the sale of iOS devices, Apple has approximately 50 to 60% of global premium smartphone revenue and for years has captured over 60% of all operating profits flowing from global sales of smartphones. Now, profits and revenue in general are interesting questions because they don't really necessarily take into account differences in pricing, differences in quality, differences in efficiency, differences in the countries in which you're selling these kinds of things. So these are overall top line numbers. But as you can see, even there, 50 or 60% doesn't ordinarily suggest very strong monopoly power. So Epic has to make the claim that you have to go down below that and find the 100% monopoly. Then they have an issue. So I've highlighted this in green, but they say in any event, regardless of that, throw all that out. Apple's anti-competitive practices would not incentivize consumers to purchase a mobile device running a competing OS because the other duopolist for mobile OS is Google maintain similar anti-competitive practices. And this is where Epic starts to get a little tongue-tied, right? They brought the lawsuit against Google at the same time. So many people came into the space in virtual legality here and said, well, Rick, I know you say that this is potentially a better analogy for the Microsoft cases and tying their Internet Explorer and all those kinds of things. But at the end of the day, Android is an open platform and you can sideload stuff and it's not a problem. That's not good enough for Epic. And so they actually have to go and as you can see them kind of devolve their argument here, okay, we say Apple's a monopolist, but maybe they're just a duopolist in smartphones. And even if they are just a duopolist, they only have 50%. Hey, there's not good anti-competition protection here because Google also is terrible judge. 
And Google runs a different business model and they're going to have that problem. They are skipping the biggest issue here, which is what exactly you do with that monopoly power that gets you to an anti-competitive standpoint. And so they want to they want to live on tying. But if they lose that tying case, they've essentially abandoned most of the discussion here about 30 percent. And the 30 percent is ultimately, in my opinion, going to be a loser because of so many platforms that Epic will admit are more, quote unquote, open like your Steams uh, that also charge 30 percent. So they have that issue. Then they say, hey, we can establish monopoly power. No question. Apple unlawfully maintains a monopoly in the iOS app distribution market. They say, hey, you have to show possession of monopoly power, the willful acquisition and maintenance of that power, and causal antitrust injury. That causal antitrust injury is the big issue here, right? Possession of monopoly power in a relevant market. So they're going to have problems establishing the market. The willful acquisition and maintenance of that power, that's easy to establish. No one is arguing that Apple doesn't hold monopoly power over app distribution on the iOS. No one is arguing that Apple doesn't hold monopoly power over how you use IAP on their service. Epic points out they have technical restrictions on how their device works. They have contractual restrictions. Those are the ones that are issue right now. And so they have this monopoly power. Then Epic has to make its case about tying. We talked about this earlier in the series, but Epic's primary case here is that Apple's contractual tying of the App Store access to the IAP process is per se unlawful. It's automatically unlawful. For a tying claim to suffer per se condemnation, a plaintiff must prove that the defendant tied together the sale of two distinct products or services, that the defendant possesses enough economic power in the tying product market to coerce its customers into purchasing the tied product, and that the tying arrangement affects a not insubstantial volume of commerce in the tied product market. Then they say, hey, you know, judge, they ignored the fact that this is binding precedent, that this tying concept exists. And they use things like Microsoft. They say, hey, in Microsoft, the defendant technologically integrated its operating system with its web browser. And the court declined to condemn this technologically integrated product as per se unlawful for fear of chilling product innovation. Apple, however, ties IAP to the App Store purely through contracts. There is nothing innovative about such an arrangement. And again, this kind of belies what Epic is saying. They want to treat IAP. They want to treat store access, existence on the iOS as effectively credit card swiping. And if they can win that case, and hey, maybe the judge will go for it, then they will win this argument that there is nothing particularly innovative about credit card swiping. However, Apple wants to say, look, court, you haven't looked at this kind of issue. You haven't looked at a digital infrastructure like this one before. It is, of course, novel when compared to something like copiers and repair parts. And so when we say that processing on the iOS, whether it's purchasing in the instant case or purchasing in-app, is not distinct. It is all a holistic part of one specific service and product that we offer to the world. I think they have a good case. I think Apple can say that because the alternative, as we have discussed, is the court and the government coming in and saying the walled garden model in general is not something that is to be allowed under the law. So this is a very kind of existential question for Apple. And it's one of the reasons you will likely see Apple fight this tooth and nail. Maybe Epic fights it all the way to the end. Maybe they don't. Maybe they lose interest. I can't tell you because I cannot predict Epic's behavior. I apologize for those of you that come into virtual legality asking for me to predict things. I cannot predict what Epic will do yesterday, let alone tomorrow. And so Apple will fight this because it's an existential threat to the business model that they operate under. Epic will fight it for some time. But when, when and if they lose this preliminary injunction request, especially for Fortnite, they will have some difficult decisions to make because that's a lot of money to give up while this is all pending. 
Apple conditions use of the tying product, app distribution, on use of the tied product, in-app payment processing for digital content through IAP. That is, to avoid being banned from the App Store, Apple requires developers to use Apple's IAP for in-app purchases of digital content. This is a naked tie. It is a naked tie if they are distinct services. It's a very difficult argument to make, though, right? I mean, it's something akin to saying that the ability to have a storefront is tied to your requirement that you use only my till to purchase things from it and not purchase it from the other guy that sits across from me and otherwise sells stuff at my storefront. You've got this continued problem of access. And because of that, just kind of on an intellectual level, on a logical level, I think you can all look at this case and say, well, at that logical level, it's difficult to say that these things are distinct, that a storefront, that a store owner should basically be allowed to confirm the terms of service for buying things through its storefront. So even if we are a monopoly provider of app access, we aren't tying something separate to that. So now you have to bring a different claim, a different claim that we are using monopoly power, our 100% monopoly over access to our iOS app distribution. You have to prove that it is somehow wrongful in a different fashion. And once you ask Epic to do that, Epic's got a certain amount of difficulty. First, on iOS itself, Apple does not condition access to the App Store on use of IAP if the in-app purchases are for physical products or for services consumed outside the app. Thus, popular apps like Uber for ride-hailing or Grubhub for takeout, which sell only physical products or services consumed in the physical world, may offer an array of competing in-app payment systems. Nearly all of these apps opt to procure payment processing services from sources other than Apple. If given the choice, developers who sell in-app digital content would do the same. This is a strong argument from Epic, and this is one that Apple has elided and really should have addressed, in my opinion, earlier on and probably in their own terms of service and developer guidelines way, way back. And that is that Apple clearly treats these physical products or service providers differently from those that are only providing digital applications. Apple is within its rights to do so, in my opinion, but it should have made that clear. And it's also going to have to explain why it does that. Said another way, Apple has to explain to the court why what it's doing here is not an antitrust violation, isn't to restrain a trade, but that there are good reasons for treating digital access differently than physical access. And I think they can make those claims. Apple running a bit of code, Apple having an actual app on its phone, do something bad, send you to some some bad dark web place, steal your credit card information. These are all things that make Apple look bad directly. Whereas if you have a bad Uber ride or if you get some bad Grubhub takeout, they don't reflect on Apple in the same fashion. So I think Apple can make that case. They have failed to do so. And in fact, Epic exposing to the judge that Apple treats these things differently is something that I think reflects badly on Apple. Second, on other platforms besides iOS, there are separate markets for distribution services and for payment processing services. Developers can and do distribute apps through the Epic Game Store, for instance, hey judge, we just happen to have this store, for personal computers while using payment processing for in-app purchases of digital content that is not provided by those stores, which is a fascinating little kind of concept and one that I think we should absolutely reflect on. So if we go and we look at Tim Sweeney's declaration as part of this, he says the following. For Windows and Mac personal computer users, Epic offers Fortnite and other applications for download through its online storefront, Epic Game Store. Epic launched EGS in December of 2018, keep that in mind, as an online digital storefront for Epic's own games as well as third-party games. Today, EGS has over 160 million registered users, over 200 third-party developers, and nearly 300 third-party games. EGS currently competes with other online distributors of personal computer games such as Steam and GOG. 
EGS provides developers with a variety of complimentary services and charges developers a 12% fee on the sale of games and applications through EGS. I love this sentence, by the way. This is totally business speak. But EGS provides developers complimentary services and charges them 12% fee on the sale of their games. Right. So, you know, complimentary. It's like when you get a free game on PlayStation Plus and you already paid for it. I mean, it's complimentary, kind of. Epic also charges a 12% fee for in-game purchases that are processed by Epic, but Epic does not require developers that distribute their games through EGS to use Epic's in-game purchasing system. Developers are free to process in-game purchases with their own payment processing system or to make use of third-party payment processors. Epic collects no fees from developers that distribute their games for free through EGS and do not use Epic's in-game payment processing. For example, Magic the Gathering Arena is available to download for free on EGS and does not use Epic's payment processing services for in-game payments. While Epic therefore earns no direct revenues from hosting Magic the Gathering Arena on EGS, Epic still benefits from including the game as part of its curated set of offerings through EGS by bringing more players to the store. Epic also benefits from creating relationships with new developers who use Epic's distribution avenues, which is great, right? We are very glad to see Epic have a business model that they think works for them and that allows this free in-game payment structure to have something like Magic the Gathering, which you think develops this relationship with the folks that make magic and earns certain respect and goodwill for Epic. The problem fundamental to this particular argument is that EGS isn't that old, right? And EGS only started in December of 2018 at this level, at least, and has this 12% concept, gives away distribution rights for free, signs up to exclusive games, And so the question becomes, you know, is this business model sustainable? EGS hasn't proven itself out as being sustainable. And anybody at Apple is likely to say, hey, by the way, judge, this might all be well and good. They are trying to lower these rates. They tried, in essence, to force this argument by having EGS in existence to make this argument to you, court. But we don't know whether it's sustainable in the long term. And also Fortnite makes so much money that everybody understands that Epic is currently subsidizing its efforts to get EGS up and running and competitive with the Steams and Gogs of the world by using that Fortnite money. So this might not be a very good argument to make. And more importantly, from the court's perspective, yeah, that's all well and good that you have a different business model, but we aren't in the business under the law or at the court level of deciding what the proper business model for Apple should be. You have to prove that it is wrong. Now, I do think it's a strong argument in certain respects towards establishing a separateness of the in-app payment distribution model. So ultimately, when you say, hey, Apple doesn't require in-app payment processing for physical users, doesn't, and other platforms don't have in-app payment processing tied specifically to their app distribution, then that is a good argument. The problem that Epic has with the second part is, of course, that it's just them. And it looks for all the world like part of the reason the Epic Game Store was set up the way it was, was to be able to put this paragraph and this declamation in the actual documents that they wanted to use to sue the Apples and Googles of the world. So it's good. It's strong. It's interesting. You're starting to make a distinction between an app payment processing that maybe the court will go for. But you have weaknesses even in those claims themselves. Third, they say, hey, consumer reaction to Epic Direct Pay on iOS proves that there is a separate consumer demand for distribution and payment processing. I'm not sure that that is in fact the case. There is a demand for lower prices, of course. Interestingly, they say 53% of users who made an in-app purchase used Epic's direct payment, while 46 continue to use Apple's IAP. I'd be interested to get some more technical information on that. I suspect 
that the 46.6% who continue to use Apple somehow didn't get updated, didn't get that little screen that actually showed the difference because it would strike me that almost all, in all cases, it would be 100% would take the same amount of goods for the 30% or 20% lower price. So that's an interesting stat in of itself. And it does suggest certain hinkiness in what happened with that update and how it was received by multiple people. Also, it could just be a read of who doesn't update properly uh, in various regions of the world. The tying affects a not insubstantial amount of commerce in the iOS in-app payment processing market. The iOS in-app payment processing market is a proper antitrust market. As an initial matter, purchases outside an app are not substitutes for in-app purchases because navigating to a website outside the app or making a telephone call to a call center is far less convenient than purchasing in-app. This is especially so for purchases of digital content, which are often inexpensive microtransactions, time-sensitive, or both, meaning that users who had to leave the app would be very unlikely to make the purchase. And again, this is the one where I just wouldn't make this argument if I were Epic. And I understand why they're making it. You're saying, hey, this hurts our business model. It also looks for any reasonable third party like, well, so you have to trick people into buying your stuff. And if they have to go through another click through that winds up losing you money, starts to look pretty bad for the overall business model. And that's not saying anything under the law. It's just saying, hey, when you're asking for things that are equitable, like a preliminary injunction, you maybe don't want to thrust forward with that. Hey, judge, if people have to think about this too much, they might not buy it. In-app purchases of digital must be processed with IAP, which charges 30%. By contrast, in-app purchases of real-world goods and services may be processed with other options, which typically charge less than 5%. And again, I think Apple can make the claim that their brand is more dependent on the digital activity, that security is more related to the digital activity than the real-world goods. I expect them to make that claim in the counter to this motion, but they really should have made this Evident upfront. They should have explained to the court that they treat these things differently upfront in a more fulsome way. And then they wouldn't necessarily be having these kind of gotcha paragraphs from Epic, which I think are legitimate from Epic, that Apple is treating things differently. Epic should, Apple should have to explain themselves for that different treatment. Epic is also likely to show that Apple's tying of the App Store and IAP violates the Sherman Act under a rule of reason analysis. This is the more generalized analysis rather than the per se tying that they just discussed for the previous dozen pages or so. They say the rule of reason analysis requires the fact finder to analyze the anti-competitive effects along with any pro-competitive effects to determine whether the arrangement is unreasonable on balance. And this is one of the problems that we have with antitrust law in the United States in general. This is one of the problems that I raised at the top of this series. And that's that antitrust law is at the end of the day, very political. It's very subjective. One can say, yes, Epic is defining a good market. One can say, no, Epic is not defining a good market. One can say these competitive effects are reasonable. These are not reasonable. These anti-competitive effects don't exist and all these kinds of things. And when you wind up with rule of reason analysis, you wind up in the headspace of the judge and no lawyer anywhere can tell you what a given judge is going to do. And in fact, Eastman Kodak, the case that we just talked about regarding aftermarket parts, has very strong dissenting arguments about how the market was set wrong and that the Sherman Act was never intended to look at those kinds of things. And those will be arguments that will be re-examined if this wound up going up to the highest level of courts because those arguments never stopped existing. And now that they are being implemented in a brand new kind of market in this digital space, they wind up being even more important to how we live in the United States and elsewhere. Apple's conduct has substantial anti-competitive effects. Apple's conduct exploiting its market power in the app distribution market to tie the app store to IAP has clear anti-competitive effects. That is clear anti-competitive harm to Epic, a putative competitor in payment processing to all other competitors who are likewise unable to enter and to developers and users who are denied all competitive options and the innovation and lower prices they could deliver. There are no pro-competitive justifications for Apple's conduct. This continues to be effectively raw assertions on the Epic side of things. 
Apple has put forth two purported justifications for its illegal tie, user security and Apple's ability to get paid. Both are unavailing. Any security justification for requiring all in-app purchases to go through IAP is facially pretextual. They are lying to you, judge. Apple does not mandate use of IAP for in-app purchases of physical goods or services to be consumed outside of the app, nor does it mandate use of IAP for digital content purchased on Mac computers. IAP is not necessary to maintain the security of users of Apple devices. My goodness. So Apple's primary claim that they made in opposition to the temporary restraining order was, hey, we get to control how our iOS operates because security is important. And you can see when you put Fortnite on Android and people wound up doing all sorts of hacking with Fortnite on Android and got upset about Android, we didn't want that in our Apple ecosystem. They brought up a lot of good sourcing for that. Epic just responds and says, they're lying to you, judge. They allow in-app purchases to go through a different processor for physical goods or services. The problem with that complaint, obviously, is that Fortnite and what Epic sells aren't physical goods or services. And if Apple can bring any kind of argument why the security isn't impacted in the same way during an Uber drive or a Grubhub delivery as it is with you actually running code on their phone, which I think they will be able to do, then that falls by the wayside. And then Epic says, nor does it mandate IAP for digital content purchased on Mac computers. Yes, I understand that they also make Mac computers. There is no question that a phone is different from a computer. And I know people come to my comments and say, no, Rick, they are the same. As devices, they are different. They are mobile. They interact differently. They are primarily used for communication, but they also have this in-app component. And computers in and of themselves are separate. Whether or not you think that they should be treated the same, they are undoubtedly different. And Apple will make the case that phones should be treated differently than computers. And Epic failed to state a reason why they should be treated the same here. So instead, they just say, Apple is lying to you. And I think this is where they kind of fall apart a little bit. That's facially incomplete at bare minimum. And they had the opportunity to say more. Then they say, hey, as for Apple's ability to get compensated, Apple argued that IAP is the fundamental mechanism by which Apple, like many other transaction platforms, implements its business model and recoups its substantial investment in the platform. But labeling a tie a business model does not remove it from the purview of the antitrust laws. Moreover, Apple's claim rings hollow. Apple's tie is not necessary to ensure payment. It is necessary only to ensure Apple's continued monopoly. Well, that's going again and assuming the premise of Epic's claim. Absolutely. If Apple's contract and this entire relationship is deemed to be a Sherman Antitrust Act violation, then, then all of that is true. Apple doesn't have a right to make money in violation of the Sherman Antitrust Act as a restraint of trade, all that good stuff. But that would underlie every argument against every walled garden, against every distributor of apps on any piece of hardware, whether that's your TV, your car, your refrigerator, your video game system, wherever. And that's one of the fundamental problems here is that Apple says, this is how this business model works. This is what everybody does. And maybe they will be held up as an example and the entire walled garden ecosystem on all fronts will come down. I find that to be tremendously unlikely. And so Epic just saying that Apple's tie is not necessary doesn't really get them across the finish line, doesn't get them where they need to go. It again, assumes that there's a tie here at all. And if there's not a tie, they failed to really establish that what Apple is doing is problematic from a consumer standpoint. Creating the iOS platform, as Epic said, does not also entitle Apple to compensation for app distribution and in-app payment processing services. It's probably the most important sentence that Epic has in this entire complaint or request for injunction. That is to say that it's a fundamental disagreement between Epic and perhaps myself, certainly Apple, certainly many of you, and, and many of you will back Epic's standpoint here. 
Apple created the iOS. It created the iPhone. It created the iPad. In general, my belief is that the company that creates those markets, even if they sell a billion of these units, generally has the ability to control access to what it means to be a part of that ecosystem, to get your app on that ecosystem. I think that is exactly how the Xbox has functioned in the past, how the PlayStation 5 will function in the future, how the Nintendo Switch operates, how every bit of hardware that isn't the personal computer market operates within what OS it runs on those services. And I do think that that is the fundamental disconnect because Epic says, yeah, you created that. You created that bit of hardware, but we deserve access to it. And we deserve access that is fully supported, that is not sideloaded or jailbroken or anything else, and that we should be able to use it to not pay you anything for that access, that you have created a market that is now no longer yours. And more importantly, despite being the controller of the brand and wanting to sell your product in a certain way, you, Apple, should not get to do that. That if you wind up with stories about Fortnite hacks and sideloading problems and all this other stuff that appears on your device and somehow harms your ability to brand your product and the people no longer want to purchase your service, well, that's not our problem because you shouldn't be allowed to market it in that fashion. And that's where I and Epic fundamentally disagree. And if you disagree with my take, that's totally okay. Leave a comment to this video about how you think it's different and how Epic is in the right here and how these things should all be opened up. But from where I'm sitting... People deserve the right, even if you or I wouldn't undertake it ourselves, to buy into a system, to buy into a product where Apple, as beneficent leader, says, we're going to take care of you. We're going to make sure it just works. You can trust us when something's on the App Store. And yes, that costs money to get that certification, to get that safety, to get that branding, to get that goodwill. And it's money that Epic is unwilling to pay and, frankly, is more than willing to break down. And that's something that Apple should bring up as part of its counter arguments at the same time. Apple then, they say, compels the use of its services in these aftermarkets and granting the requested preliminary injunction would not cause Apple to give away its products for free. Remember, that's what they're fighting against here. They are fighting against the judge saying, hey, now, 0% isn't fair. I can see that at the outset. In 2019 alone, iPhone hardware sales generated $142 billion in revenue. That revenue reflects Apple's investment in iOS as well as the value provided to the iOS ecosystem by many thousands of developers. Absolutely, it does. Apple has built up this brand and built up a brand that benefits Apple, sure, but also benefits those developers. And Epic always skips that point of the argument. But judge, Epic does not want or need Apple to provide it with distribution or payment processing services for free or otherwise. Epic wants to utilize its own competing services for its own apps and for others. If and when Epic prevails, Apple would no longer provide it with either service and therefore would not be entitled to any payment from Epic. And of course, there are many ways that Apple could get paid for distribution that do not foreclose the iOS in-app payment processing market, such as charging a flat fee or a per download fee. That's distribution side right? Epic wants to be able to say, hey, Apple, you know, you could always just charge everybody else. And definitely that won't have any impact on the fact that we're going to open an Epic app store next to you that won't charge that amount. So yeah, do that. Definitely. And maybe you're on Epic's side. Now you say, yeah, Rick, that's fine. But Epic's just saying you can be anti-competitive as long as you're allowed to, as long as we're allowed to compete with you. And then we'll beat you on quality or price or anything else. On the flip side though, the judge has clearly talked about access supported access on this piece of hardware. And I can't think of many instances in antitrust law or elsewhere where somebody has essentially been able to force a hardware manufacturer to allow it to operate code on its hardware because to do so would be a pro-competitive kind of concept. It obliterates 
the creation of the ecosystem in the first place. And maybe you don't think that's a valuable thing. That's totally up for you to determine. But it does limit and mitigate the apples of the world, the next apples of the world, from wanting to create the ecosystem in the first place and to provide these consumers with a product that they apparently know and love. Epic wants to break in there. Epic doesn't think it should have to pay because it won't be in the app store and it won't be selling in-app purchases. It will just have access to the iOS and the iPhone hardware, and they liken it to computers. And maybe that speaks to you. It doesn't speak to me. Now, they also have a footnote here, which is pretty interesting. Apple has argued that many video game digital marketplaces have similar fees and requirements to use the marketplace's official in-app purchase functionality. Indeed, that's what we've talked about throughout this series. That's one of the reasons why it's in virtual legality in the first place. Here's Epic's response to that. iOS is not a video game digital marketplace. It is a critical platform for developers of all sorts and an essential tool for users in multiple aspects of their daily lives. As Apple itself trumpets, vast swaths of economic and social activity are funneled through iOS. And unlike the gaming consoles to which Apple points, which are typically sold at a loss in a competitive market, iOS is an inescapable member of an upstream duopoly with extraordinary power over developers and users alike. Now, there's a bunch of different concepts that are all baked in there, and there are concepts that you can 100% see, if you want to follow him, Tim Sweeney describe on his Twitter for the past couple of months. A number of people have come out and say, how does this not obliterate Xbox and PlayStation and everything else? And they come out and say, well, those are different because, well, Apple and Google are duopolist providers of smartphone OSs, not necessarily smartphones themselves, but the OSs, and video game consoles are often sold at a loss. But those two points don't actually dovetail in a fashion which makes a ton of sense, right? We're not talking about whether or not Apple's iPhone is a video game digital marketplace. We're talking about, on an overall conceptual basis, Epic's theory of the case, that someone that creates a bit of hardware and that controls sales of applications through that hardware should be allowed to set the terms and conditions for the sales of those applications. The, the actual monopoly power of the sale of the hardware is not even in Epic's case because they can't make that claim. They try in a couple of places to suggest certain duopolist powers, but ultimately their entire case relies on the fact that Apple is a monopolist of iOS app distribution. And there is no question whatsoever that Sony is a monopolist of whatever they call their OS on PlayStation app distribution and in-app purchases within those games on that distributive level. And so Epic's theory of the case will have these follow-on effects. I'm not saying that Epic would bring the case after Epic wins if they do so in this particular instance, but somebody else will. Somebody else will say, hey, Epic versus Apple establishes that if you are a monopoly provider of app distribution, then these things can be severed and I should be able to open up a competing store. And there is nothing to separate the use of a phone as being very popular and very useful to people from the playing of a video game or having apps downloaded on your TV or in your car or on your refrigerator or anywhere else that might uh, happen. This will actually occur much more in enterprise hardware. Think of a CAT scan machine that requires as part of your purchase that you only use the OS and the actual software provided by the CAT scan machine manufacturer. And maybe that maybe you think that is great to break down those walls. I tend to think that that will be problematic in the long run. But ultimately, Epic is completely skipping the point here, which is to say that their theory of the case does require that thought process. And just the fact that Epic doesn't want to bring it because, hey, consoles are sometimes sold at a loss doesn't mean that a judge that holds on this theory of the case 
wouldn't be setting a precedent that others could use against those manufacturers. Uh, continuing on here, we've got irreparable harm and public interest. Uh, Epic's decision to defy anti-competitive restrictions does not require discounting the harm to Epic's or his customers. The same principle that prevents unclean hands from being a defense to an antitrust claim also prevents it from being a basis to find a lack of irreparable harm. Again, we talked about this at the top, excuse me. But at the end of the day, Epic is trying to use precedents of courts that ultimately found illegal contracts to say, court, you should be okay putting forth a preliminary injunction. Now, they actually make a pretty good argument here with a precedent they found in, and I'm going to fail this pronunciation, in Acquire versus Canada Dry Bottling, the defendant mandated resale prices for its distributors and retaliated against distributors who refused to comply by withholding product from them. The distributors sought a preliminary injunction to prevent the defendant from withholding product, even as the distributors continued to defy the resale price agreements. The court granted the preliminary injunction, rejecting the defendant's argument that any irreparable harm to the distributors was self-inflicted, and that the defendant withheld product only from those distributors who elected to participate in the promotional program, but refused to abide by its terms. Said another way, this precedent that they found, the court ultimately said, yeah, we haven't yet decided whether you will win the case, but we will uphold this preliminary injunction, even though you're getting the benefit of this program that you've entered into and are now not abiding by its terms. The problem is we don't have a deep dive into this case. And as part of virtual legality, I can't do all of the legwork that these lawyers are undoubtedly doing for all that billable time on both sides of this case. But as you know, just watching the temporary restraining order argument happen and now watching the preliminary injunction happen, this is a balancing test. And so if the court really does think that the one side or the other is very likely to win, a preliminary injunction will ensue regardless of the kind of irreparable harm concept, right? So this is a balancing test on all fronts. And while any given court could, of course, decide to uphold a preliminary injunction on these particular cases, I think the court's overall posture here that Epic at bare minimum is in the gray area and is going to have a difficult case to win, can win it, of course, but it's not a fait accompli, as I have said before, makes it less likely for them to look at irreparable harm as something that should be protected by the court, especially when Epic can fix it in an instant and go get those damages that it says are so easily to be paid to Apple after the fact. So when you're talking about this thing and Epic says, hey, court, you should grant this to us because, hey, if we owe damages to Apple after the fact, that's fine. We can just pay them. Apple can say the very same thing. Apple can say, hey, fix it. Let's continue to operate as, as we have operated. And if we owe you the difference in the money that you would have made at the end of the day, we will pay you that. You just said damages are easy. Let's do damages. Thus, by refusing to follow Apple's anti-competitive contractual restrictions, Epic is furthering the public interest. I don't think that's likely to be a winner. Then we get into all of the rest of this stuff. Well, actually, first, I wanted to talk about this footnote because this adds another interesting bit of color here. To be clear... Epic does not argue on this motion that the entire PLA, that's their developer agreement, or all of the App Store review guidelines are unenforceable. The unlawful provisions tying app distribution to in-app payment processing and requiring distribution of consumer apps through the App Store may easily be severed. Said another way, hey, judge, you can leave that whole developer agreement in place. You just can't have the requirements that we use in-app purchasing or the requirement that we have to abide by these rules to get on the App Store. And I don't think that'll fly, but it's interesting to see Epic try to get into a place where the judge could potentially grant some of this preliminary injunction without completely obliterating the entirety of Apple's ability to have any developer agreement with anybody in place at all. Then Epic says, hey, 
look, there are a lot of harmed third parties, Fortnite players, Unreal Engine developers. Apple's actions will wreak havoc on the existing Fortnite community. You see here them say users on iOS have already declined by more than 60%. Apple has driven a stake in the Fortnite community. 63% of Fortnite users on iOS access Fortnite only on iOS, et cetera, et cetera. They never really answer the real primary problem, which is that it's only been on the iOS, I think, for a couple of years. We don't get the number of Fortnite users that aren't on iOS at all. So the Fortnite community is bigger than just iOS. They don't really actually answer that question. Apple will probably bring that up in their response as well. We've also got this whole metaverse argument. Moreover, Apple's removal of Fortnite from the App Store will stunt Epic's efforts to compete on a new technological frontier that is rapidly becoming a key focus of research and development among digital innovators, the creation of the metaverse. But again, it assumes that Epic has the right to access every bit of hardware in order to realize this creation of the metaverse. And that was never going to be the case. Everyone else that they contract with has the right to enforce their own terms. And Epic is having difficulty defeating that overall concept, especially since they can fix the fact of the matter up front. In its TRO opinion, this court held that Epic Games made a preliminary showing of irreparable harm as to Apple's actions related to the revocation of the developer tools as the Unreal Engine fight. Because if Epic Games succeeded on the merits, it could be too late to save all the projects by third-party developers relying on the engine that were shelved while support was unavailable. So again, I think Epic's strongest case is right here. These findings were amply supported. Unreal Engine developers will be harmed. And Apple failed to show breach of these specific contracts or anything. Apple never really had the opportunity. If you go and look at the timing there, Epic's response to the request for the temporary restraining order was limited only to the Unreal argument findings, really at the end of the day. And they were the last party to actually put a document in front of the judge. The judge wound up holding for Unreal Engine against Fortnite. Apple never really responded to that in full. I would expect a pretty fulsome response from Apple on the Unreal Engine question and why they should have the right to discontinue a relationship on a contractual basis with a party that is accusing them of acting anti-competitively and, and creating all sorts of bad things and, and putting out, you know, parody logos and free Fortnite and beat the bad Apple and all these various things in which ordinarily outside of the context of a federal lawsuit, a party would be well within its rights to say, okay, well... We control our right of association and the right of freedom of contract, and you are no longer a partner we wish to have, and so we're going to cut you off. Now, the court could come in and say, well, this is too important, and Apple, we can't allow you that right, but I think it's a tough burden for them to, to actually clear, and if you go back to that temporary restraining order uh, and the order that was made by the court, you see them say, we're going to look at those contracts more fulsomely when Apple actually helps build out what that, what that means for everybody on Unreal Engine and on Epic in general. Finally, they say the balance of harms tips sharply in Epic's favor because of what we said in the overview. Epic said, hey, look, you can correct this easily. If the court does not grant the requested preliminary injunction, the harm to Epic will be significant and Epic's refusal to abide by Apple's unlawful agreements should not be held against Epic. Further, Apple's fear that developers will drop IAP is additional evidence that developers use IAP only because Apple forces them to do so. The balance favors Epic even more with respect to Epic's other agreements with Apple, Unreal Engine, their separate integrated agreements. Apple will not be harmed at all by continuing to allow Epic access to developer tools or accounts that are widely available. It would simply lose some leverage it was hoping to improperly gain. It's very interesting to frame it that way, right? Because Epic's the one that breached the agreement and is trying to gain leverage by Fortnite people that are upset. And so if you actually look at the leverage question, again, this is my opinion, it's only that. I look at this and say Epic is the one that is really trying to leverage its position and Apple is just trying to enforce its contracts and Epic can fix this. Epic can fix this in two seconds. So it really comes down to whether or not the court agrees 
that Epic's refusal to abide by Apple's contract is something that Epic should not have to do. And finally, we get to the conclusion and they basically say, hey, you should grant us our preliminary injunction. It's the injunction that we talked about at the top of this entire discussion. They want to have Fortnite put back. They want to prevent Apple from doing anything against Fortnite. And they want their team put back in the developer program. So that's ultimately what Epic has put forth. I think they have a lot of good arguments here. I think they have a lot of good, strong, focused discussion of why they think they should win the case. I think at the end of the day, I'm still of the position that Epic has a relatively weak case and certainly at the preliminary injunction level to actually go and get a court to require Apple to put Fortnite back up as modified without actually getting to the end state, actually proving in a court of law that there are these antitrust violations, I think will be a bridge too far for them. I am very interested in seeing what Apple will respond to Epic with, with respect to the Unreal Engine and the overall developer contract ecosystem apart from Fortnite, because I think Apple will have a lot of arguments to make that they should have the right to cut off relationships in general, and it's not their fault that Epic has decided to breach and otherwise harm that relationship. And Epic can ultimately put Fortnite back the way it was in order to get back on the store. That is, of course, confounded by the fact that Epic Games and their team has been eliminated from the developer program and probably can't do that directly anymore. But again, that was Epic's position to take. Maybe the court will wind up saying that Apple has to bring them back if Apple is willing, if Epic is willing to take down the Fortnite payment options. But that's anybody's guess. And as we've already seen in the temporary restraining order, the court can do whatever it wants to do. So that has been just under an hour and a half of discussion on Epic's claims here. I hope you enjoyed it. I'm sorry it ran a little bit long. It's certainly a good addition to this series that we're doing on Epic versus everyone. And it is the kind of thing that we talk about extensively here in virtual legality. So if you like this, please like, subscribe, ring bells, tell people that we are here. And if you caught this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to it as a podcast, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.